Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 56. As we reach these last couple of chapters, uh, before we get to chapter 60, chapter 60 to the end of the book is really this picture, if you will, uh, of the millennial reign of Christ. But until we get there, it's kind of like, what does God want out of us? What, What would the Lord have us be? And in that sense, it's very similar to what would the Lord say to the church and how would he want us to live today? And so chapter 56 begins this little journey of four chapters where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the children of Israel about what he expects us to be. And it begins with a message really on how we are to worship the Lord. And so it looks forward even into our day and time and how we today ought to prepare our hearts to worship the Lord. What does God want? But before he gets to that central truth, the prophet Isaiah makes a statement. And it's this in verse 1. For thus says the Lord, keep justice, do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. It puts us on notice that even in Isaiah's time, the Lord is near. He was going to come. He would come for the first time. Church, he's going to come a second time. And the church needs to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Would you pray with me? And for those of you that don't know yet, Our brother David, the pastor of the church next door, uh, is in heaven. He went home to be with Jesus last night. And we want to pray for Lisa and their two sons and for the church that God would move, even in the midst of difficulty, and speak to us. Because time is short, church. Maybe it's short because of the pandemic. Maybe it's short because, like me, maybe you've pushed a lot of the years of your life are already behind you. Uh, Maybe for some of you, you're younger and you're looking forward to those days that um, the Lord would use you in in your best and brightest time. But for all of us, in light of eternity, the Lord could come for his church tonight. He could call you home tonight, and certainly one day all of us will meet him, and in light of that that eternal perspective, it's going to be very soon. And so let's pray. Father, we lift up Lisa to you. There are two boys, one family chapel, Lord, the church. God, we know that your word declares, there in Psalm 116, that blessed 
In the sight of the Lord is the departure of your saints. But for Lisa, it doesn't feel blessed right now. Those two boys, it doesn't feel like that's a blessing. It's hard and it hurts for the church. They're missing their pastor. For a wife, she's missing her husband. For two sons, missing their dad. And God, we thank you for that promise that to be absent from the body is to be present with you. But we pray that you would fill that church and that family with your presence right now. They need more of you. Lord, we thank you for the witness, Lord, that Lisa was to us, to our staff. Lord, as she just rested in you, made the hard decision to send her husband to another hospital, and in doing so, had to say goodbye. And so would you be with them? And would you bless us tonight with your presence by your spirit, fill this place, fill our lives and our hearts with you, Jesus. Help us to hear your word and to live it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the prophet Isaiah, as he opens up this chapter, it's a short one, but it's a powerful one begins by encouraging the church that the day of the Lord, the day of his salvation, the time of the Lord is way closer than they thought it was. Now, they were in trouble. They're in a situation to where it's not looking good. The answer when things don't look good here is to not look here, it's to look there. Amen? That's what Isaiah is trying to communicate. For us even today, when our outlook is an uplook, our outlook will be good. If our outlook is a downlook, our outlook will always be bad. And so the focus here is about the kingdom that would unfold in Isaiah's time, not for some nearly 700 years, the age of grace wouldn't start. But the fact of the matter is, is every day that goes by, as was true then, as is true now, the return of the Lord is closer. The time of the Lord is closer. The end of your life is nearer. You're always closer to the end than you are to the beginning. The moment you take your first breath, you're also taking your next step to your last breath. The question is, what are you going to do with the time that God's given you? How are you going to respond in light of the things that are going on? Maybe we could just simply look at it from our perspective, our day and time. I think some of the church today is suffering from spiritual amnesia. We have forgotten really how good our God is and how great our God is and instead turn to other things. It seems like some in the church today feel like their, their spiritual gift is discouragement to point out the faults of others within the body of Christ. For yet others, it's to try and make their political points known. For others, it's to find their place as a discernment ministry. In other words, to f- find fault in others' ministries. Church, those things are not only a waste of the time that you have, they're a waste of the time that God gave you. 
They always will be. There are better things to do with our time, so much so that Peter, as he wrote in his second epistle, and though it's a fairly lengthy chunk of scripture, I want to read it in addition to where we'll go tonight in Isaiah 56. But it begins in verse 1 of 2 Peter chapter 3, Beloved, now I write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir you up to your pure minds by way of reminder. And there is the inference to the amnesia that the church had during Peter's time. The forgetfulness, by way of reminder, consider this, remember these things, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. So there's the inference to Isaiah's time. So not just to the people in the time that Peter wrote these words, shortly after Jesus had ascended to heaven, but to the people who were alive at the time of the prophets, which is what we're reading in Isaiah. Of of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing first, and here it comes. I got an email today. And the gist of it was this. When is your church going to stand up When are you going to tell everybody to take their masks off? When are you going to open the doors wide and stop hindering the body of Christ from meeting together? To them I say this, why don't you go ask Lisa? There's a reason we're doing what we're doing. That isn't hindering the church. It's not stopping us from praising the Lord. It is a test for us, and it's a test for us about what matters. And what matters is what mattered to Jesus, and that is others, not ourselves. That scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly forget. They're not just deceived. They're simply choosing to ignore the obvious, to forget that which was said to them. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. In other words, this speaks of the creation account. God's been speaking to mankind since the very beginning. Standing out of the water and by which the world existed then perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire. Church, can I just tell you something? This world and everything on it is destined to destruction. No amount of you buying LED light bulbs, no amount of you purchasing carbon credits, No amount of you caring about the glaciers, and by the way, all of those things are good, and I'm not saying you shouldn't do them. I'm telling you that if you do them, they will not save this earth. Why? Because the Bible clearly says this earth and everything on it is destined one day to be destroyed. Not because of climate change, not because of a nuclear holocaust, because of the literal plans of God. He's going to remake this earth. 
Notice what it says. Until the day of judgment, perdition of ungodly men. In other words, men are going to get their way for a while, and then God's going to take care of it. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. Go with the Lord one day as it's a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And some of you are probably thinking, man, could that one day be today and could the thousand years be over? You might be going, it's been long enough, it's been hard enough, it's been tough enough. But there's a reason that God is waiting. And it's not so we can save Mother Earth. It's not so that we can finally become the people that God intended us to be. It's because of what is going to follow next. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. Who's the us? Humankind. Not the world, not buildings, not trees, towards people. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. The reason in this church we preach the gospel and teach the word is that God is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it doesn't say die, it means perish eternally. If you die in the Lord, you're very much alive in heaven. If you die without the Lord, you're very much alive waiting judgment. So it's really clear what Peter was saying and what God intends us to have. And that is an attitude towards the things that are going on in our world that are eternal, that focus the right way. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, and both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Is that simple enough for everyone? We have people in the church focusing on the things of the earth when God's concern is souls. That doesn't mean we don't care about the American Cancer Society. We should do that work too. But it means the prime directive for the church should be God's prime directive, which is the winning of people to Christ and then the sanctification that comes through walking with Christ. That's what the church is supposed to be concerned with. The children of Israel trapped in Jerusalem were concerned with themselves. They were concerned with their pandemic. And so God's going to give them a lesson on eternal things. And therefore, since all of these things, verse 11, will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Church, brothers and sisters, our directive is very, very, very clear. We're to be worshiping the King of kings, the Lord of lords, We're to be concerned about God's things first and foremost and primarily. Amen? Don't forget that. Because right now, the, the propensity of humankind 
is to focus on an impeachment trial or to focus on what our new president is not doing or to focus on what's happening in our state house. And while all of those things have some merit in your daily lives, they will touch you. They are not the main thing for the church. They're not. The main thing is do your children know Jesus? Does your family know Christ? Do your neighbors know the Lord? Are they walking with Jesus? Because everything you see right now is one day not going to be. Your Bible says so. So we should be concerned about what will remain. What will remain? Every last soul in one of two places. Every soul. So what are we doing about that? What are we doing about that? God keeps his promises. God did destroy the world. He used a flood to do do it. But at the same time, as he reminds us, he reminded the children of Israel, look, focus on eternal things. Focus on righteousness. Living a life that's pleasing to God. James said it well in James chapter 4. What is life? What is it? He answers his own question, by the way. Verse 14, it is a vapor. It appears for a season and then it vanishes. That's life. It's all life. For some of us, it'll be shorter than others. For some of us, it'll be longer than others. For all of us, it will only be a vapor. In light of eternity. And so my eternal destiny is actually being shaped while I'm here. You ever thought about that? You're only going to live, let's say you live a really long life. I think that currently the oldest person on the planet is 116. 17. Okay. Duly noted. Must have had a birthday and I didn't know about it. 117 years old. Think about that for a second. That means they were still born after the turn of the century. Undoubtedly grew up with horse and buggy and horses and walking. Along would come steam locomotion, all those kind of things. They made it all the way to the development of telephone, telegraph, television, satellites, TV. Can you imagine that? But you know what? In light of eternity, nothing. It's a vapor. There were generations before. There are now generations that have been born after. What are you doing with today? Because it is today that shapes your eternity. It's the decisions you make now in this life. What you do with Christ is the thing that matters. And so they're being reminded the time of the Lord is at hand. It's close. God's delaying for a reason. And so how does God want us to live? Well, we're told here in verse 1, at least the beginning of it, keep justice, 
and do righteousness. Now, before you think that's too simple, let me expand that a little bit. To keep justice would be that everything horizontally that you will ever do will be absolutely perfect with regard to other human beings. You see how difficult that might be? That means every law, every work, everything that you have ever done and ever said to keep justice means to, in essence, be just with other human beings the entirety of your life. Anybody think that's going to be a little hard? I do. You only do it if you're empowered with the Holy Spirit. And even then, you're not going to do it perfectly. Unless you happen to be so completely filled that you walk in the presence of the Lord every day, which is possible, by the way. Now notice what the second thing is. Even harder still, do righteousness. That's the vertical part. That's the part where you and God are 100% square. Anybody struggle with that? You're not perfect in righteousness. Let me put both my hands up first. No, probably all of us can say, no, in my doing of righteousness, my vertical relationship, there's some things that I can improve on. So Isaiah, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says two things that functionally, without a relationship with God, are impossible. And then he goes on to talk about salvation, the only solution to both things. You see, because my human relationships, they're not going to be close to perfect without the help of the Holy Spirit, which comes to us when we receive Christ. My vertical relationship is actually broken until I receive Christ. I don't even have a vertical relationship in that sense beyond God's innate goodness. And so this whole passage begins with, get your eyes on the Lord. Get it off of things like politics. How does God want us to live? He wants us to keep justice, be fair, be honest. That's why when people send me emails and stuff about what we should be doing in the realm of politics, I said, how would you possibly discern how to spend your time as a believer in the realm of politics and think for a moment that it's going to be just and fair completely? You can't. And so I spend my time being a Christian that then as my life touches the world of politics, hopefully I'm being just and being fair and being righteous. It doesn't work the other way around. That's why Isaiah opens this chapter with this principle that requires that we have the right viewpoint. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle. It doesn't matter what position you have. That's why Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven for yourselves. You don't even allow those who are entering to go in. The church is a big 
open family. It shouldn't be exclusive. Jesus is a friend of what, church? Anybody know the answer to that? He's a friend of sinners, Republicans, and Democrats, not just publicans and Pharisees. Both sides. Please, I implore you by the mercies of God, keep your eyes focused on heaven. Everything else will be okay if you do that. Everything else will be okay. You see, it's about JC, not R&D. Blessed is the man who does this. Verse 2. And the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Notice that this person that grabs this concept is the person in verse 1. This is who does this. And while I think it's important for us to have a biblical understanding of the Sabbath, because I've had Christians come to me and go, you know, well, we really need to keep the Sabbath. You you might want to read what the Bible actually says about the Sabbath. And there in Exodus chapter 31, it is very clear. And the Lord God spoke to Moses, verse 12 of Exodus 31, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me, who is that? The Lord, and you, who is that? Israel, throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And verse 16 goes on to say, Therefore, To the children of Israel, you shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout your generations as a perpetual covenant. God gave the Sabbath specifically to Israel. Why? Well, there's a reason. Because if you actually look at what the Sabbath is, it's not what we make it out to be. It's not a specific day, though it was for the Jewish people. Even the word Shabbat doesn't just mean rest. It can mean that. It really means cessation from work. A very specific kind of work. And it was given to them as a covenant. Why? Because they constantly tested God in this area. Why was it that they did that? Because it was a commandment. Just like we sometimes test the rest of the Ten Commandments, don't we? Thou shalt not be covet thy neighbor's goods. Anybody struggle with that one occasionally? Your neighbor's car. You know, see, we can easily, well, my neighbor's goat or what, you know, whatever's there. But how about your neighbor's car, your neighbor's house? Oh, and then by the way, it says your neighbor's wife. Yikes. Like every once in a while, we kind of test those things, don't we? Well, the Jewish people tested God in this. And so God told them, look, you need to cease and desist. You need to rest. You need to, be sa- you need to have a Sabbath. Why? Because he was going to send Jesus to be their Sabbath. And it's interesting what eventually happened. They were to cease from work. 
the Hebrew word there, melakah, or melakot, which is the, the plural of that. The reason that that was so important to him was what God was telling him was like, look, if I can create the entire universe in six days, you can give me a little bit of your time. You, you don't need to spend all your time thinking about yourself. You need to spend some time thinking about me. In other words, if I can do it, you can do it, basically. And so eventually, he came up with 39 categories of things that they could not do, which interestingly enough, were tied to all of the activities that were used in the making of the tabernacle. And so it's really fascinating when you think about what they couldn't do. They couldn't beat wool, they couldn't plow, they couldn't sew, they couldn't dye wool, they couldn't weave, they couldn't spin, they couldn't make threads, they couldn't tie things. There were 39 things they couldn't do. Why? Because they were always the things where you took one thing and made something else with it. Very specifically, God's house. God was saying to them, I don't need you to make me a house. I need you to spend time with me. That's all he was saying. I don't need another house. We got a tabernacle. We've got a temple. That one's good. You don't need to do that again. What you need to do is now go actually worship me in it. Spend time with me. You see, God is always concerned primarily about the condition of our heart. And so in this, the children of Israel were told, this is a perpetual covenant. Do this forever. And so they should keep the Sabbath. And if you go to Israel, interestingly enough, the Christian churches there, the Messianic congregations, all actually have church on Saturday, on Shabbat. So that they can both keep what they are as Jewish people and still worship the Lord at the same time. That's always been a problem for mankind. We seem to turn everything into some type of religious obligation or duty. We just have to make it a ritual. And God's saying, no, I just want your heart. And so for us as Christians, we've now had this glorious opportunity to, to now worship the Lord really on any day. The Apostle Paul actually goes on to say that I esteem every day exactly the same. Amen? Every single thing that we do can be to the glory and to the honor of the Lord now. Before they had these really rigid conditions. It's like, okay, we go to the temple and we bring a sheep, we bring a goat, we bring a dove, we bring a bundle of sticks, we bring a sheave of grain, we do all these things, we do a very specific order, and God frees us from all that. And just as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 10, Interestingly enough, because Corinth was a really, really wicked place. Temple of Diana, both there and in Ephesus. You got most of the good barbecue was done at the church. And it was very often that it was offered to an idol. And so Paul addresses that. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness of it. That's the Apostle Paul. Talking about meat that was sacrificed to idols, by the way. 
And so I've had people come to me and say, well, you know, I mean, the, the Apostle Paul said, uh, uh, you know, maybe we should eat vegetables. And they go on, they, they get on these tangents uh, of these things that we can do for the Lord to somehow make our relationship more holy. God wants your heart. He couldn't care less whether you're a vegan or a vegetarian. If you are, praise the Lord. If you somebody plops a ribeye in front of you, you don't have to go, hey, did you offer this steak to, a, to an idol? If you come to my house and I cook one on the barbecue, it's going to look like it got offered to an idol because I'm going to char it and all this. It's like, it doesn't matter. What matters is you. What matters is your heart. We want to worship the Lord every single day, church. It shouldn't just be, well, I go to church on Sunday. I come on Thursday nights. You know, praise the Lord. I'm so delighted that you all are here on Thursday night. But we should be in the presence of the Lord every single day. This is a unique opportunity we have to come study his word, amen? But you should be in the presence of the Lord every single day. And so Isaiah is saying that. He's saying, look, this isn't about a place that you go or a thing that you do. It's not about Sabbath keeping. It's about is your heart inclined towards the Lord so that you're always in that sense at Sabbath rest with the Lord. Christ is my Sabbath. I got no rest without Jesus. Honestly, church, I got no rest without Jesus, period. That's why we don't have to worry about what everyone else is doing. I just rest in the Lord. I haven't been called to pastor every other church in the South Bay or every other Calvary Chapel. I've been called to do the best I can in pastoring this church. God's going to hold me accountable for that. So I'm going to rest in Christ. And I want you to do the same. The Jewish people, as they continued on that path, they they come out of the wilderness, and what do they do? They immediately start making more laws about how to to keep the Sabbath. To where if you travel to Israel today, it's the craziest thing. If you get on the Shabbat elevator, you better have a lot of time. Because it's going to stop on every floor because you can't work by pushing a button. You get on there and it just stops on every floor and the doors automatically open. I had the craziest thing. I got on the regular elevator and obviously an Orthodox man got on the regular elevator and he asked me to push the buttons for him so that he wouldn't have to work on Shabbat. I thought to myself, this is crazy. It's like, you really think that God doesn't know that you're asking me to push the buttons for you so you don't have to work, but you're actually doing what he told you not to do, which is working. Now, let me say to you, we are absolutely no different than that. It's just that our things that we do to try and get our focus, instead of on the Lord, onto the things of this earth, are different. They're not better. Focus on the Lord. Make every day a day that is the Lord's day. You're going to be happier in your life, I can tell you that for sure. Amen? You don't want to get caught up in
being a legalist and trying to figure out how you can do things for God. Look, all, Apostle Paul said it well, all of my righteousness is as filthy rags. My own personal righteousness. The only righteousness I have that matters is the righteousness of Christ. That part is good. Verse 3, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dying tree. And you can kind of see the contradictions in these things. You know, we have a tough time with the, with the word eunuch, but it really simply can mean one who's consecrated, set apart unto the Lord, so much so that they would remain single. Can you imagine how silly it would sound to God? God, I committed my life to you and I don't have any children. Well, kind of, you, didn't you do that yourself? It's amazing to me how many people complain about their relationship with the Lord. We accept God's grace, but then we complain about God actually doing in our lives what we ask him to do. You may give up a few things to follow Christ. Matter of fact, Jesus said, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So there's going to be some things that are probably not going to be the way they'd be if you walked in the world. That shouldn't shock us. It shouldn't have shocked the Jewish people either. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name. And that better than that of sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In other words, he's saying, whatever you trade, Whatever you give up, whatever you deny yourself in having so that you will do justice and do righteousness and walk justly and humbly with your God, seek that relationship by, through our salvation that we have in Christ, it will be worth it. It'll be worth it. Say, look, you're going to have a spot in my house. Whatever you give up, it's going to be worth it. And the inference here is there's no difference. If anything, it almost seems like there's, there's something that is maybe even a tad better for those who've given up more of themselves. Me personally, I'm just going to be glad to get into heaven. Amen? You, you see, we need to look at these things the way God looks at them. And the Apostle Paul actually addresses this same issue in 1 Corinthians 7. And he actually, he himself, eventually, for the Lord, uh, did not remarry, though it's widely believed that he was originally married. Maybe one of the things that he suffered was the fact he never remarried for the Lord. Why? So that he could give himself wholly to the Lord. And so that the, the thing that's being brought to our forefront of our thinking here is God wants all of us. He actually wants us to fully give ourselves. So in verse 6, also to the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and, to, and who love the name of the Lord to be his servants to everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast to my covenant. It's just 
these people, people who give their all to the Lord, receive the Lord's all from him. In other words, all of him for all of us. That's that's the trade we make as believers. There's that diversity that we have in calling. God doesn't call us all to be exactly the same thing. He calls us all to give the same amount of ourselves. Doesn't call each of us, doesn't give us all the same gifts. To some, he gives the gift of teacher and evangelist and prophet. He gives gifts to men, to women, to people. But he doesn't give all of us all the gifts, and he doesn't give everyone the same gifts. But he does expect all of us to give all of ourselves to him. That's what he wants. That's our sweet spot. If you want to know what your sweet spot is in the Lord, it's give him all you are. Let him have every bit of it. Every gift, every talent, every skill. Give him your weaknesses and your faults. Give him your foibles, the things that other people look at and go, man, that's just that's just not good. Give him those things too. Because God actually has a house that's open to absolutely everyone. It's open to everyone, church. Verse 7, even them. And you can kind of see in these groups of people, it's like not everybody in, in these last several verses was of the same level of commitment even seemingly. But even to them... I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted at my altar. And my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Anybody remember anybody else who said that? We just covered it on Sunday. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it. A den of iniquity or a den of thieves. Matthew says you've made it a den of thieves. But God's house is supposed to be a house of prayer that's open to everyone. And when we mess that up, we're actually keeping people from God's house. And I think that really causes the Lord to be sad and sometimes mad. You know, one of the things that I... I, I believe I misunderstood when the Lord first placed me into pastoral ministry was somehow it was my job to sanitize everybody that came through those doors. You know, I was supposed to kind of, you know, make sure that they were ready for the house of the Lord. And as I've grown in my ministry experience and time over some three plus decades, I realized that's actually God's job. Those doors are supposed to be open to everyone so that when they get here, maybe they'll be a little bit better off than when they came through those doors. But God wants his house open to people. People who are in all kinds of different states, people whose lives are in completely different states of sanctification, for sure. Some of them don't even know the Lord. You know what's amazing to me? I've actually had people come to me and say, well, you know, uh, I heard you let a homosexual into the church. And I said, well, duh. I sure did. And we let drunkards and prostitutes and gluttons. Ooh, I didn't say that, did I? 
Oh, how about liars? Bitter people, angry people, spiteful people, hmm, mean-spirited people. How about this one? People who don't have any self-control. Wow. You know what the answer to all that stuff is? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, everyone. That's how people come to know Jesus. That's how the transformation happens. They hear the word, the word transforms. You know, church sometimes is messy. Sometimes it doesn't look exactly the way we want it to look. It doesn't feel the way we want it to look. But from God's perspective, he desires for people to come to spend time with him so that they can rest because only his yoke is easy and only his burden is light. The world out there is a burden pusher, puts burdens on people. Should be a different world in here. Should be a place where people come and go, man, for an hour at least my burdens were lifted. You see, in Jesus' time, that's the reason he actually flipped over the money changers' temple. Their little spot that they had eked out in the corner of the court of the Gentiles and Solomon's porch where they were having this exchange of money. You see, you couldn't use Roman coinage in the temple. And so they'd make a little bit of money off of everybody. Instead of giving them direct exchange, it's like, ah, it's going to cost you. That's why Jesus was angry. That's why he was upset. That's why he made a whip and started to drive them out of the temple. Basically, people were charging to get into God's house. Ouch. Church, we're blessed to live in the age of grace. Amen? That grace is a free gift, by the way. Comes through faith. That faith is given to you. It's not of yourself. None of us can boast about it. And so Jesus speaking was really saying the same thing in the Gospels that Isaiah is saying here. And Isaiah goes on, the Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel. Who does he gather? Outcast. Isn't it interesting who Jesus gathered? Who followed Jesus everywhere? It was always the outcasts. It was never that the religious people only followed to try and point out Jesus' faults, to criticize to say, you can't let them in here. Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. In other words, the Lord's saying, not only do I want my house open, you're going to be surprised with who's in heaven. And you may be surprised who's not there. All you beasts of the field come to devour. You beasts of the forest. His watchmen are blind. Notice this. They're ignorant. They're dumb dogs, they cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. In other words, people who are supposed to be watching over the flock of God are asleep. They're worrying about other things. 
making merchandise, making a buck, taking care of those things which take care of themselves. Yes, they're greedy dogs which never have enough. They're shepherds who cannot understand. Give you a little wisdom from shepherds. If you ever meet a shepherd who doesn't stink, he's not a shepherd. Hear what I just said. If you ever meet a shepherd who doesn't stink, he's not a shepherd. You know why? Sheep stink. And if you're around sheep, you're going to stink. That's a fact. And I can say that with some authority. My family had some sheep when I was growing up. You get around a sheep, you're going to smell. And so the prophet Isaiah is saying, look, they can't understand. They're never around sheep. They're only around themselves. They hang out in their little clusters, their little groups. They get together and they all pat each other on the back. Look, aren't we the spiritual ones in the group? They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain, from his own territory. Come, says one. I'll bring wine. We'll fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be as today, even much more abundant. And so Isaiah leaves us kind of hanging on the cusp of a thought, of an idea. And it kind of points towards this, this thinking of how do we deal with the unjust things that are in this world? Because we as a church, he's saying very clearly, especially we who are in leadership shouldn't be involved in this stuff. We shouldn't be encouraging the church to be in harm's way. We should be keeping the church from being in harm's way. We should be barking at the right time. We're probably going to get a little dirt on us because, you know, sometimes people have problems. I know that's hard to believe. Church. God is holy. And he expects us to be holy as he is holy. God's going to deal with all this stuff that we see in our world one day completely in a very finite way. Until that time, we are actually the best hope for this world. It's us doing justly. It's us being righteous. It's us opening the doors of the church to anyone who will come. It's us setting the right standard for those who come in so that they can see what righteousness actually looks like, being doers of the word, not just hearers only. Not deceiving ourselves, being the right kind of a watchdog, being the right kind of a shepherd. So that we bring people in, so that we draw people to the Lord, so that they can be saved. Notice this started with salvation. It's like bringing them in. To that salvation that is of the Lord. Jesus was very clear. The Apostle Paul echoed the same thought that he came to seek and save that which is the lost. That's our mission. The rest of the stuff that's going on in our world, we should be the compassionate ones. And I, I would say to you, thank you for being that so very often. It just blesses my soul when I hear of the things that you all are doing in the name of the Lord. You know, when we're sitting outside of hospitals praying with nurses and doctors and 
security people and taking them food. That's the hands of Jesus. You know, you can preach the gospel in a lot of ways and sometimes you have to use words. Amen? So just preach the gospel. Open the doors of your home. Let's open the doors of the church. Let's make sure that we're being what God wants us to be. For his salvation is about to come to someone. And it may be the person that you bring to church. Maybe the person that you take care of their groceries because they can't get out. And maybe some faraway land that we have some ministry in, which is right now 16 different countries around the world. But let us put away our selfishness and our sinfulness so that people can see Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you that you first loved us. And while we were yet sinners, you, Jesus, died for us. And we pray if there's anyone here tonight that's never believed in you, Jesus, they, they haven't confessed their sin, they haven't acknowledged that sinfulness against you. It's not against me, it's against you, Lord. They haven't said you're right and we're wrong. Or would you convict and convince that you, Jesus, came to this world that the world through you might be saved? You didn't come to condemn. The world through sin was already condemned. It's the message of John chapter 3. And so, Lord, we, as your church, just come and we ask you, God, help us to do justly. Help us to live righteously. Help us to draw people to you. Help us to fling the doors of the church wide open. Lord, help us to not hinder the gospel, but to preach it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.